Open to John chapter 12. John chapter 12, verses 1 through 11. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there, which, you know, I think if somebody raises a family member from the dead, you ought to give them dinner. <laughs> Seems like the etiquette thing to do. Yeah, <laughs> good, good point. Good point. Uh. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief, and having, char and having charge of the money bag, he used it to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, Leave her alone, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. When the large crowd of Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. And God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock, our strength, and our redeemer. Amen. So we're going to talk, I'm going to talk this morning about the heart of worship, and uh, I'm going to talk about four different, four different ways that people's hearts respond to Jesus in this passage. Um, but before that, I just want to talk about, this is one of those passages in the Bible that point to the divinity of Christ. We talked last week about Jesus being liar, lunatic, or Lord. And, uh, and so I want to just reinforce that the gospel writers make it very clear uh, that Jesus Christ is both fully, and, and it's, a, it's, hard, it's a hard concept to understand, but he is both fully man and fully God. He's not God pretending to be a man. He's not a man with God-like characteristics, like a great saint or a super prophet or great teacher or hero. He is, in fact, in the flesh, the full revelation of the Father, the Son of God, fully God, and fully man. And here's one of the verses that really point out his divinity, and here's how it points out his divinity. The act that Mary performs upon Jesus is an act of worship. Very much like uh, Thomas, at the end of the Gospel of John, when he bows before Jesus and proclaims Jesus to be what? My Lord and my God. And in both cases, I want you to notice Jesus' response. And as you notice Jesus' response, understand who Jesus is. Jesus is a Jew. What's the first rule of a good Jew? Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. And then you'll have no other gods before me. And you won't make an engraven image. And you won't bow down to anything that's not God. When the Apostle John, who wrote this, is confronted by an angel in the book of Revelation, John falls to his knees. And what's the angel's response when John falls to his knees? Get up! Worship God and God alone. Don't worship me, I'm an angel. 
But when John, or when Thomas, proclaims that Jesus is God, at the end of, at the, end of the Gospel of John, Jesus says to Thomas, Blessed are you, for you have seen and believed. And even more blessed is Rebecca, because she hasn't seen, and yet she believes. You're more blessed than Thomas. And when Mary bows down and pours out this extravagant gift of perfume, not upon his head, but upon his feet, that is a humble posture of worship. In fact, that's what the word worship means, to bow down. So Mary bows down to Jesus' feet, very much in reflection of Psalm, like Psalm 2, kiss the son, lest he be angry. It's almost as if she kisses his feet, but she anoints them, dries them with her hair. It is an act of worship. And when Judas rebukes her, Jesus praises her and receives her worship. And so, this is one of those passages in the Gospels that points to the divinity of Christ, that points to who he is as fully God and fully man, and therefore worthy of worship. However, not everybody comes to that conclusion. And I actually want you to move ahead a slide. I'm going to start with the bad guys first. Uh, two of the responses are the response, first of all, is the response of Judas. And that is the heart that is corrupted. And because the heart is corrupted, it can't recognize Jesus for who he is. And it can't recognize the beauty of what others are giving to Jesus. Now, I think Judas started this thing sincere. Listen, I have never really understood why people get into religion to steal money. There's better money to be made elsewhere. If you're going to be a thief, you know, get into some other avenue of it. It's, yeah, I mean, the pickings are too small and the penalty's too big. But I don't, think Jesus got, I don't think Judas got into it to be a thief. I think Judas got into it because he saw something in Jesus. And he thought, maybe this is Israel's hope. Maybe this guy is the Messiah. And as he hooked his wagon to Jesus, uh, he was inspired like the rest. And Judas also had a gift. He was good with the figures. He was good with the money. He could add and subtract. You know, it's pretty much what accounting is. I mean, it's more than that. Working with the IRS, it's more than that. Bookkeeping, you know, yeah, Adam's, keeping a checkbook, Adam subtract. All right? Check, keeping a checkbook, Adam subtract. I'm good there. Yeah, I'm not dealing with the IRS. That's more than adding and subtracting. So, he was good with that. So they gave him that responsibility. And then somewhere along the line, he got disillusioned. Somewhere along the line, that's why, that's why Judas, uh, Judas tries to, you know, he, he wants Jesus to meet with the Pharisees. He, wants, he, he, he thinks Jesus is going down the wrong path. He's making too many enemies. He's not, he's not making, and, and pretty soon Judas becomes disillusioned. And, pretty, and then there's just this, this subtle thing that begins to creep in. And it probably started just, you know, hey, I just need a little bit right now, I'll pay it back. Right? I just need a little bit right now, but I'll pay it back. And he took the little bit. But then what happens? Every time you need a little bit, I mean, how much money does everybody here in this room need right now? A little bit more. Right? You just need more. 
and uh, and it never and and if you make two hundred thousand dollars, you want to make two hundred fifty thousand dollars, and if you make a hundred thousand dollars, you want to make a hundred twenty thousand dollars. If you make fifty thousand dollars, you want to make sixty thousand dollars, and if you make ten thousand dollars, you want to make fifteen thousand dollars, and if you make three hundred dollars a year, you want to make three hundred fifty dollars a year. And Judas just needs a little bit more. And pretty soon, what, what happened is a one-time thing becomes a habit. And Judas starts extorting money from the ministry of Jesus. The first church extortionist. Uh, there's been others since. And so he just starts taking money. And then his heart grows hard, right? Because you have to grow your heart hard to silence your conscience. Listen, don't be troubled if you are troubled with your sin. Be troubled if you're at peace with it. Don't make peace with your sin. Make peace with God. But don't make peace with your sin. Be troubled if you're at peace with your sin. Be troubled with your rationalizations. Be troubled with your justifications. Because that is the beginning of a hard heart. And I'll tell you where the attack will come. The attack will come at your strengths. Because your strengths are your weaknesses. Judas was good with money. And that's where his attack came. Haven't you noticed that about people? Their strengths are their weaknesses? Right? The person who's great at taking control and getting things done is a bossy pain in the you-know-what, right? Uh, I don't even want to use another example. Uh, okay, I... Uh, my, one of my strengths is my mouth. I can talk. I can talk. And, yeah, it gets, nothing gets me in trouble like my mouth. And, I can, and, and God has put a destiny and a call on my life to be an encourager and an edifier, to encourage people and edify them and build them up with words. And in high school, I was known as the king of the cut because I was so sarcastic and, uh, and I, I still can gently tease people. And it, it, it's, in my family, that's a, that's a love language. Um, would you have a dinner for me, for, you know, for Jesus if he raised me from the dead? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Depends how old you are. <laughs> Maybe now, yeah. As long as free babysitting's involved, sure. 30 years from now, we're not so sure. So... Your strengths, I, I promise you, your strengths are your weaknesses. What you're good at, there are people who love to serve. We're going to get to that in a minute. And they are also people who are ministry hogs. Have you ever met a ministry hog in a church? Ministry hogs are people, they, you know, it's, it's like uh, uh, they've got to do this, and then you, you open up, and, oh, I'll do that too, and I'll do that too. And it's like, no, oh, let, I mean, a lot, of times, a lot of times pastors are ministry hogs. They want to do it all. <laughs> Not my problem. <laughs> you want to get down here an hour after early, take my job, help and set up? I'm good with it. 
I love to delegate. Which is another one of my strengths. I love to delegate. And my weakness is, I'm lazy. <laughs> your strengths are your weaknesses. And that's where Judas gets caught. And uh, he uses religious rationalizations, right? This money could have been given to the poor. Listen, whenever you're offended by somebody's extravagant worship, pretty much, pretty sure you, you're the one with the problem. And you know what? When people say things like, this money could have been given money to the poor, ask them this question. How much have you given to the poor? Good. I'm glad you have a concern for the poor. Let me see your tax return. What did you give? What did you give? And so, I'm always, caught, I'm always wary of religious rationalizations. And I'm always wary of myself or other people keeping score on other people's acts of worship. Uh, I, I believe in extravagant worship. I'm my personality type. I mean, I'm just not going to jump and, you know. And I was at a conference one time. I think I've told you this story before. And they, they were doing the big parachute thing. Have you ever seen that? No, it wasn't Promise Keepers. This was way, this was, parachute things are way too not macho enough for Promise Keepers. There, there was this lady, and she just loved prophetic dance or whatever, and she was doing this big parachute thing, and you know, having people run to the middle, and the parachute would go up, and then run out and do circles, and she was choreographing the whole thing. And I was just, I was just looking, and, and in my heart, i got to tell you, I was kind of mocking. It's like, that's kind of goofy. And then somebody left, and she grabbed me. And so now I'm doing it. And, yeah, I'm... <laughs> and then my wife and a friend of ours are standing over there and they are totally mocking not the parachute thing, me and then God in his justice, two other people left and the lady said, oh we need two more and I was on that like a pack of dogs and I, those two will do it and so all three of us were And I don't get it. I don't, you know, it, I, I don't know how much that enhanced my experience of worshiping God. But you know what? Who am I to keep score on those people who were getting into it? Who am I to keep score on that? I remember the first time I went to a Pentecostal church. And this was in the 80s, man. And the ladies had big hair. Big hair and dresses and makeup. And the guys were in three-piece suits. But they were running around like a track meet, man. They were just all over the place. And their hands were in the air. And they just... You know, I grew up Catholic. I was like, oh, not here, man. It's and I just, I just said, God, I said, God, these people are just showing off. And God spoke to me. And here's what, here's what God said to me. He said, I don't care about them, which doesn't mean he didn't care about them, but, but here's the point. He said, I don't care about them, but Kevin, would you, would you lift your hands to me? In other words... Let's, why don't you stop keeping score on them, and I'll start keeping score on you. And so religious, you know, when we judge other people's religion, oftentimes that's saying something about ourselves. So Judas has the corrupt heart. Then there's the heart of outright opposition. Lazarus got raised from the dead. People witnessed a miracle, and their response, this is, this is how wicked hard hearts can be. Their response is, we want to kill Lazarus again. 
We want to get him dead again. Because people are believing in Jesus. I mean, opposition oftentimes is so irrational. It's so irrational. I was at a, I was at a, a, a meeting one time, and I preached on healing, and a woman who had been in back pain, chronic back pain for four years that night was healed. And people left the meeting mad. Because people fell. It's like, and, and, and as best I knew, when people fell, nobody got hurt. It wasn't like we healed one and we injured one. <laughs> Though I have seen that happen. I have seen people get, you know, moderately, you know, people say, well, God's a gentleman. He wouldn't hurt anybody. No, but that lady falling, that lady falling on that guy broke his glasses, so. <laughs> it happens. But people, it just, it, it struck me as so irrational. The opposition is, is irrational. And, 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 and the opposition becomes violent. Throughout the world and throughout church history, the opposition to the gospel has been violent. We sit here and whine in our country because we get mocked in the media and the government doesn't do everything, you know, in favor of Christians. Well, dear ones, all around the world, there are people who are worshiping underground and in house churches because if they come out publicly or their churches get too big, they get put in jail or they get killed. Uh, The Chinese house church movement is one of the fastest growing church movements in the history of Christianity, if not the fastest. From 50,000 Christians at the end of World War II to approximately 130 million Christians today, and it, it's growing it, it, under communist oppression. There's a, there's a state church in China uh, that's pretty much controlled by the government. And so, but the house church wants nothing to do with the state church. They don't want to be controlled by the government. And so they just meet in house after house after house. And the gospel is, is taking over China. And the Chinese house church Christians say to the American Christians, pray for our freedom. Because when we're free, we're going to evangelize the Muslim world. Because we're not afraid of persecution. We get that. They teach, one of the first lessons they teach house church leaders, house church pastors, is how to jump from a second story window and roll when you land so you don't hurt yourself to get away from the government when they're coming to get you. I didn't take that class in seminary. (laughs) Jump and roll 101. We didn't have that. That wasn't, you know, it wasn't like, you know, second semester after you mastered hermeneutics. And so the opposition is violent, it's irrational, and it is calculating. The devil is devious. You look at, you look at all the... One of the things the Gospels show you is all the behind-the-scenes meetings that take place to get Jesus on the cross. The Sanhedrin meets at night, which was illegal. They, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, who didn't like each other, now start having these little meetings and getting together. What are we going to do? Oh, we're going to have to kill Jesus. We're going to have to kill Lazarus, too, because people are believing on account of Lazarus. Like, like if they murder Lazarus, people are going to, you know, people still saw him raised from the dead. And what if they kill him and Jesus raised him again? They have a bigger problem on their hands. But they're, but they're calculating. And don't be, don't underestimate the irrationality, the anger and the violence, and the calculation of those who oppose the move of the gospel. And dear ones, as much as it's hurtful, don't be surprised by it. It's real.
Now those are the two bad responses. I want to, I want to get to the two good responses. Just for you ladies' sake, I just want to say in this passage, the men have all the bad responses, the ladies have all the good responses. Which has often been the case in church history. First of all, there's Martha. Martha gets picked on because she's a servant and Mary, Mary always, get, Jesus always says nice things about Mary. And he, he rebukes Martha at one point. But listen, Martha's a servant. And dear ones, there's nothing wrong with being a servant. Lord knows servants are good. Jesus came, not, Jesus came to serve. And if you want to be great in his kingdom, we'll get to it in a few weeks. We'll get into John 13. He says, uh, if you want to be great, you must serve. You must wash one another's feet. I, there are very few things that encourage me as a pastor in the life of the church uh, more than people who humbly and faithfully serve. I love seeing people come to the Lord. I love seeing miracles. I love seeing, you know, the fire of God fall on people. I love the exciting stuff. I love all that stuff. But you know what I, you know what really I love is somebody who week after week, month after month, year after year, serves. Teaches Sunday school. Sets up, takes down. Uh, leads a class. Opens up their home. Somebody who just serves. And not, you know, for gain, not for, hey, look at me. Because after a while, again, if you're, if, you're going for, if you're going for glory, find it elsewhere, you know. Church, churches, we don't, we don't got big kudo badges for people. You get your rewards in heaven. You know, I'll say thank you once in a while, but, but you get your rewards in heaven. And... Uh, and, you, and servants find that they get their rewards now. Now, now dear ones, don't serve out of, don't, your strengths are your weaknesses. Martha may have been a bit of a codependent. You know, one of those people, the minute you say need, they can't resist. That's their drug. And, uh, you know, pastors can exploit those kind of people. But I, 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 avoid, the, I avoid them because codependents, they always want, they, there's always an agenda there. They always want the attaboys, and they always like to be the victim. It's like, well, I do everything around here. Well, stop then. You know, really. If I don't do it, nobody will. Yeah, maybe. We'll see. I've just learned it's not worth the price. But, but Mar and Martha may have been a bit, I mean, she, she does play that little victim card with Mary, right? Jesus, I'm making dinner for you in the 13, and Mary's just sitting there listening to you. Tell her what she should do. And Jesus tells Martha what Mary, that Mary's doing the right thing, and Martha is not getting it. So there may be some of that. So, but, but aside from that, especially, especially like a small church like this, you know, one of the things I actually, I, I, one of the things that I, more, a higher percentage of people at a small church have to pitch in and row. You know what I'm saying? A higher percentage of people got to help because there's just jobs that need to get done, and you don't have 600 people to pick from. And so I just appreciate that. I appreciate servants. And there's, listen, that is, that is a great starting point for every Christian. I love it when people say, how can I help? How can I help? And I love people with cheerful attitudes that help. This is so great. It's encouraging. Um. There can be some false humility in it sometimes. 
Uh, and here's, here's how false humility works. Some people start as servants and they end as servants. I met a lot of these people when I was in the mainline church. They served on every committee, which believe me, in a mainline church, serving on a committee takes great perseverance and endurance and long-suffering. And they had served on every committee throughout the years, and every church cleanup day they were there, and every time the building needed painting they were there. But if you asked them where a passage was in the Bible, they were like, oh, that's too lofty for me. I'm just a humble servant. It's like, no, you're just too lazy to read your Bible. You're too afraid to take the next steps into intimacy with Jesus. You're, not, you're called to be a servant, but you're not, only, you're not called only to be a servant. And Martha... I don't know that she understood that, but her sister got it. Mary took a step beyond being a servant of God, and she became a worshiper. And let me tell you what worship is. Well, first let me tell you what it is. And I've given you this definition before. Worship is not coming and singing your four favorite songs and getting the holy goosebumps on Sunday morning. No matter how good... Uh, our, our musicians are, no matter how good Yvette leads, that's not worship. That's singing songs. Worship has everything to do with what's going on in your heart while you're singing those songs. And the word worship means to be bowed down. And I want to give you three characteristics that Mary displays in her worship. And I'll start with the middle one because I just mentioned it, and that is worship is about humility. Not false humility. False humility focuses on how low I am. Real humility focuses on what? How great God is. And not only how great God is, but man, that person next to me is pretty special too. Real humility doesn't find fault in people, but finds gold in people. If you find a person who finds the good in people, you found a humble person because they're not in competition with other people. They don't have to bring other people down to feel good about themselves. Real humility finds gold in others and exalts in the greatness of God. And real humility doesn't think poorly about itself, just doesn't think all that much about itself. Not really worried about what others are thinking, just kind of getting lost. And that's what Mary's doing. She just gets lost in how wonderful Jesus is. My brother was dead, and he's alive. And you have, you have taught me the things of life. When, when you come into my house, I can't get away from your words. They, they've, they've gripped me. They hold on to me. How many of you have had that experience where it's like, even if I didn't want to be a Christian anymore, you know, it's, it's like, Peter, where else am I going to go? How many of you had that experience where you are just gripped by God now? You're gripped. Even if my life stunk from here on out. God, I, I know you're real. I know you're good. I don't have all the answers. I don't have it all figured out, but I can't go anywhere else. I mean, I, my, I, I jive with St. Paul when he says, Woe to me if I don't preach the gospel. And Mary is gripped by Jesus. And that's humility. And so it's not a problem for her to pour this oil on his feet and dry it with her hair. 
That's what worship is. It is a bowing down. I've said this before, but I've been to church since I was a kid. I went, grew up Catholic nearly every Sunday. I've been in church in my life. And we've never once sang a song about Kev. Oh, maybe, maybe once or twice they sang happy birthday to me at some church. But, you know, it, was, it wasn't part of the service. It was like after or before, you know. But, you know, we've never sang all to Kev, I surrender. Or how great Kev art. Amazing Kev, how great the sound that saved us. We never did that. And that's good. I do that enough on my own. But when we worship, it's humble. It's about him. It's all about him. Father, Son, Holy Ghost. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him creatures here below. Praise him above, ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. And worship is about extravagance. You can give without being a worshiper. But you can't worship without being a giver. I'm not just talking about money, but I am talking about money too. There is no true worship of God without your... When, when you come by here and do this, that's not an offering to keep the firehouse afloat. It may seem that way. It may be used that way. But it's not. It's not a, it's not a, or it's not a collection. You know, I, I used to go to like Little League games and they would pass the hat. Help keep Campbell Little League alive. And somebody would pass a greasy old baseball hat. People throw their change in. That's not what we do here. This is an act of worship. It's an act of worship. It's an act of saying, God, you have given me an abundance. Pressed down, shaken together, overflowing. Thank you. Thank you. Mary gives a year's wages. She gives a year's wages. That's what this gift costs. So whatever a year's wages is, and one extravagant act of worship. Listen, there are some impulses that we ought not to abide. Uh, impulses to anger, not a good thing. Gets us in trouble. Impulses to buy what we can't afford, not a good thing. Um, you know, there's just sometimes impulsively speaking. It's like, dear ones, some of you, including myself, we just need to le learn this lesson. You don't have to say everything that comes up on the screen. I pray Psalm 141, verse 3, almost every day. And you probably know the days I don't pray it, because I'll say what comes up on the screen. Set a guard over my mouth, keep watch over the door of my lips. And then I add my own little prayer to the end of it. Let my words be a blessing from heaven, not a curse from hell. Let my words build up and not tear down. Because I've spent too much time in my life allowing my words to tear down. Because I spoke impulsively. And there are times, man, I just pray, God, do I need to, you know? Sometimes people ask you, Pastor, what do you think? It's like, God, I'm going to pray here for a second <laughs> before I say. <laughs> I think a lot of things right now. Uh, help me, Jesus. But that, you know what? 
God never gives stuff in creation that is always bad. And impulses are not always bad, are they? The impulse to be kind should be obeyed. The impulse to be generous should be obeyed. The impulse to love should be obeyed. Very few people do heroic acts well thought out. Most heroic acts are impulsive. Most great deeds are done on impulse. I don't think Mary was calculating, you know, one of these days I'm going to pour that year's worth of wages, my retirement account, and that jar of perfume over the feet of Jesus. But there that night at dinner, as the one who raised her brother from the dead, as the one who included her as a disciple, as a woman, just like the men, allowed her to sit at his feet, who taught her the ways of life, who had liberated her from oppression and fear, who had set her free to know God, the one she loved more than anybody on earth. It dawned on her in an instant, that's what that perfume is for. I don't know if she knew she was being prophetic, that Jesus was going to die. But it was a prophetic act of impulsive love. And she was extravagant. Let me ask, have you ever been extravagant? Or is, is your giving calculated? Nothing wrong with calculated giving. Nothing wrong with figuring out, oh, this is what I make, and this is what I give to the poor and the church, etc., etc. Nothing wrong with figuring that all out. But has there ever been an extravagant act where all of a sudden it's like, you know what, I've got to do this. This doesn't make sense, but I've got to do this. an extravagant act of worship and of love. It's an impulse to be obeyed. I don't, I don't run into people who regret... I, I run into people all the time, including myself, who regret a lot of what they've done on impulses. I mean, how many of us have bought stuff, got ourselves into debt by buying stuff on impulse, right? Just two of us. Wow. What a well-disciplined crowd. All right. How many of us have, uh, have hidden our sins in church for, in afraid of public uh, exposure? <laughs> All right. Love is extravagant. Love is humble. And love is unashamed. Love is unashamed. It just doesn't care what other people think. When Jill and I were first dating, we were so in love. You know, we were... We were, we were you ever run into those people who are just obnoxiously in love? They just giggle together, and they hold each other's hands. You know, it's like they're connected, and they're always holding hands. And I even realized it. I even realized we're always holding hands. We're always all snuggly. We're always, you know. But, like, who gives a rip? This is a really pretty, smart, wonderful girl, and she likes me. You think I'm going to let go? I couldn't get loser girls to like me, and now a winner likes me. This is good. Love is unashamed. And, and so, you know what? If the Lord leads you to run and dance and leap and wave flags, dear ones, do it. You are free to worship expressively. You are free to sing expressively. To make your own song unto the Lord as a vet's playing up there. And, 
and to sing prophetically. You are free to worship God. My only problem, my only problem with some expressive worshipers is they, they go to the expressive worship place, but they never go to the humble and extravagant place. Listen. If you wave flags and dance wildly before the Lord, I'm all for it. But if you're not humble and don't give and don't serve, it's a noisy gong and a clanging bell. It's not going to bring in the kingdom. But I know how to do it prophetically. Great. Great. I would... Listen, please understand me. We don't even have the flags anymore. We're kind of restricted from that. Please understand me. I love flags in worship. I love dance. I love people doing it. I don't... Whatever expression... Lift your hand, you know, as long as it's not David in your linen ephod. No underwear worship at this point. We do have boundaries. All right? No underwear worship at this point. But apart from that, you want to dance, you want to leap, you want to you flag, you want to paint, you want to, uh, you know, spin around. Do it. And you have my blessing. Because I believe that worship is unashamed. But don't take shortcuts. That's a little bit costly, but real worship is what? Real discipleship, real worship is costly. Dear ones, it's going to cost you something to follow Jesus. It's going to cost you position at work. It might cost you a raise or a promotion. Don't whine about it too much, because if you were in Iraq or Iran, it could cost you your life or your family. In Sudan, it could cost you your freedom as they sell you into slavery. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, when Jesus calls a man, he bids him come and die. And that's really what worship is. It's a dying to ourselves and being lost in the life of God. And it is extravagant, it is humbling, and it is unashamed. And nobody in the New Testament, I think, portrays that better than Mary at this point. She doesn't care what Judas thinks. She doesn't care what her sister thinks. She doesn't care about her retirement fund. All she knows is the thing, the person she was born for, she has been blessed to have him sit in her living room. And that's worth everything she has. What wouldn't she give for ten more minutes of Jesus there with her? Martha is a servant. God bless her. We love Martha. We, Lord, thanks for Martha. But I'll tell you something. When Lazarus was dead, Martha the servant came to Jesus. And Jesus gave her a theological discourse. I am the resurrection and the life. 
Mary came to Jesus, and Jesus gave her tears. He wept. And then he gave her her, her dead brother back. You want to see signs and wonders and miracles? I think they happen more readily for Mary's than anybody else in the Bible. Not that she earns them or deserves them. But she sure puts herself in a place to receive them. And that's why we put worship first at the Firehouse Church. Our church, our church first, evangelism is important. That's not our first priority. Discipleship is important. That's not our first priority. Our first priority is worship. Don't mistake that with the worship of worship. It's the worship of God. It is extravagant. It is humble. It's costly. And it's unashamed. Lord Jesus, we want the heart of a worshiper. And it isn't the music. The music is a great tool. But I, I remember the song Matt Redman wrote, The Heart of Worship. And it's, it's such an irony that he wrote a song about his church being forbidden to write and sing songs. Because he was a part of a church where they, would, where they got caught up so much in the music that the pastor put a moratorium on it and said, we're going to worship God without the music because we're starting to worship the entertainment, the music. And the church had a renewal without music because they had been making it an idol. And then when they came out of that season, Matt Redman ironically wrote a song about it. It was a great song, The Heart of Worship. And it's a simple song. It just says, The Heart of Worship, it's all about you. It's all about you. It's all about you, Jesus. Just say that right now. It's all about you. It's all about you. It's all about you, Jesus. Give us the heart of worship. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. Go in that peace to love and serve the Lord. Amen.